To your name, Lord Jesus, be all glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you were in over your head? Have you ever felt that you were inadequate to meet the challenges you face? I have a long life filled with such experiences. As Paul said to the church in Corinth, bear with me in a little foolishness. As a young man, I was very aggressive. I was the kind of person that if I walked in a room and nobody seemed to be in charge, I would take charge. But that was really a defense mechanism, if you understand psychology. It was a way to hide my inadequacies. It was a way to hide my feelings of insecurity. You've heard the phrase, delusions of grandeur. I do not have delusions of grandeur. I have delusions of adequacy. I grew up in St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Salisbury, North Carolina. and It was a small Mill Hill church. And most of my young life, we were without a priest. My father was a lay reader, and he would preach and read morning prayer on Sunday mornings. In that morning prayer service, and there's a prayer called the General Thanksgiving. And it goes in part like this. That we show forth our praise not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to thy service and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. Believe me, beloved, giving up myself to God's service was not a goal of mine as a young person. And indeed, I felt very inadequate to such a calling. There was at St. Paul's a, a woman, an old spinster woman, who played the organ and taught piano and uh, taught the adult Sunday school class. Her name was Ola Brown. Everybody called her Miss Ola. Well, one day in the churchyard when I was about 15, Miss Ola laid her hands on my shoulder and she said, Fred, one day you will be a priest of the church. And for the next 15 years, I ran from God and I ran from Miss Ola Brown. <laughs> I entered NC State to study architecture. And after one semester, my design professor called me into his office and he said, Fred, if you want to spend the rest of your life designing grocery stores, then stay in the School of Design. But if you'd like to do something more meaningful with your life, I suggest you change curricula. He really did me a favor. It hurt, but he did me a favor. So I changed curricula to engineering. And then came physics and calculus, and I changed curricula again. <laughs> I have a degree from NC State in, in industrial arts which means I'm qualified, if I had a couple educational classes, to teach shop. <laughs> Years went by, and our son Frederick was born. 
When he was about a year and a half old, he was in the hospital undergoing some tests. My wife was at the hospital with him. I was at home in bed with the mumps on both sides. Nurse drove Carolyn home from the hospital, and she told me the news that Frederick had severe brain damage, that he would probably never walk or talk, that he might be a crib baby the rest of his life. We did not know Jesus Christ, but I knew where to find him at church. I rolled out of bed and we got on our knees beside the bed and we prayed together perhaps for the first time ever and we confessed our need for Jesus. Not long after that, Faith Alive, which is a lay witness ministry in the early 70s in the Episcopal Church, came to St. Jude's Episcopal Church in Columbia where we were members. In a break in the normal routine of, the, of that Faith Alive weekend, on a Saturday afternoon, a Jewish itinerant preacher named Marvin Arnove came to St. Jude's and he gave his testimony. And he invited those who would to come down to the altar rail and receive Jesus Christ. I was one of those who went. It was September the 23rd, 1972. I was 30 years old. A week later, a woman named Rosanna Leet, who was the wife of the widow of a Navy captain and a member of the church, laid hands on me and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It had been 15 years since Ola Brown laid her hands on me. I would have answered the call to ministry the very next day. But I felt very inadequate, very ill-prepared for seminary. The academic challenges I knew would be rigorous, and I was not ready. And then there was that little matter of finances. How do we support ourselves in seminary? Six years later, and two more sons later, when our youngest son was three months old, excuse me, four months old, we loaded a moving van, and Randy Peacock, who some of you know, who is my best friend for 38 years, helped me drive that van from Columbia, South Carolina, to the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a harrowing drive at 2 o'clock in the morning through the mountains of West Virginia. <laughs> Seminary was every bit as hard as I thought it would be. My education had not prepared me. I had not read classic Christian works. And a confession is I still haven't. <laughs> my, church, my church history professor... That doesn't mean you shouldn't. <laughs> My church history professor, Les Fairfield, was such a good preacher and teacher that he would read his notes like this. And when he finished his lectures, we would stand and applaud. 
But let's keep making references to classic Christian works or saints of the church. And I knew nothing about any of that. And I went to Les and I said, Les, you've got to help me. You make reference to a book that you think I've read. I haven't read it. Can you give me a clue about something of the content? And he agreed to adjust his lectures to help me through. Well, by God's grace, I got through. Mine was and is a simple faith. The first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. And I believe if you can believe that, the rest of it is easy. In the beginning, God. There was an old Baptist radio preacher who used to say, if you have trouble understanding what the Bible means, try letting it mean what it says. Again, by God's grace, I graduated from Trinity School for Ministry and I passed my general ordination exams. I was called to be the first rector of a new charismatic church, Christ the Redeemer Episcopal Church in Montgomery, Alabama. There was a letter on the wall from the bishop that said, we would worship according to the Book of Common Prayer with certain rubrical freedoms which meant it was okay to speak in tongues, to sing in the Spirit, and to lay hands on people and pray. The church grew and prospered. In the first four years, we built two buildings and paid for the first one. But there, too, I found myself personally inadequate. And full-time ministry came to a painful end. I returned to business to the company I had worked for for eight years before seminary. And they sent me to Charlotte. It was 1985. And I've been a bivocational priest ever since. When I first came back to Bonnets, the company I had worked for, Bill Rogers, whom I consider a friend, who was the founder of the company and the chairman of the board, said he needed me to be prepared to run the company someday. Well, it didn't work out that way. I became vice president of whatever they want me to do this week, but never president of the company. I've been at King of Kings since the very beginning, joyfully doing what God allowed me to do with great thanksgiving. A year ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, hence this tremor you see. It's more an annoyance than it is a problem, but it is an annoyance. When Randy asked me to preach today, my first response was that I was not comfortable. He and I talked. I got a little pastoral counsel. God began to remind me that availability is more important than ability. He can deal with my inadequacies. George Whitfield, who was also an Anglican priest, 
who along with John Wesley was a founder of Methodism. John Wesley, by the way, died an Anglican priest. George Whitfield was a preacher and evangelist. They, said that they say he's preached 18,000 times to over 10 million people in England and in the American colonies. He is quoted as having said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. The advantage of age, beloved, is perspective. I know that I am not the Lone Ranger. I'm not alone in my inadequacies. Scripture, you know, is divided in chapters and verse. And those are artificial. They're not written that way. So I want to begin today, if you'll turn with me to the gospel lesson. I want to begin, actually, in chapter 13, which I be believe the story really, where the story really begins. In chapter 13, verse 36 and following, we read, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It was Peter who had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here he says, I will lay down my life for you. Peter proved to be inadequate in the face of his challenges. We can only imagine the anxiety that Peter felt as he stood in the courtyard of the high priest's palace while Jesus was on trial. We can only imagine the disappointment he felt the moment he heard that rooster crow. He failed the Lord. He failed the Lord. That brings us to today's text. Jesus' response to Peter and to the other disciples is this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Peter and the other disciples will be forgiven. They will be restored. Jesus gives them here the assurance that every child of God needs. There is a place prepared for you. 
That is a word not only to Peter and the disciples, but to each one of us. Let not your hearts be troubled. I will come again and take you to myself. Verse 4 reads, Jesus said, And you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way you where, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas, who would later refuse to believe that Jesus was risen without seeing him, without seeing the nail prints in his hand and putting his hand in his side, asked, how can we know the way? Thomas, too, felt inadequate. Jesus' response was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is one of the simplest sentences in the Greek New Testament. It is such a straightforward translation that it leaves little room for interpretation. It is emphatic. I, I emphatic, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father if not by me. If not by Jesus, there is no other way. Some people in our modern society equate the great Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam and Christianity. But I'm here to tell you, based on the words of Jesus, that if we would come to the Father, it will not be by all the sacrifices of the Jewish temple. It will not be by submission to, to Islam, to Allah. It will really not even be by right Christian doctrine. It'll be by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Then Philip said, Philip who said, we have found the Christ, come and see. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Philip had been with Jesus three and a half years and he felt ill prepared. He felt inadequate. He still wanted to see the Father. He didn't understand. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus' disciples felt pretty much the way you and I feel. In over our head. Inadequate. But Jesus promised to equip them. He promised to give them the Holy Spirit. Because I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit. Read the rest of chapter 14. It's all about Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit. And what that Spirit's ministry among us will be. We are not left as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, to our own devices and resources. They are totally inadequate. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. I don't think Jesus is talking just about miracles. Although I can tell you I've seen miracles. I see my son who doctor said would never walk or talk, who never shuts up or stands still. <laughs> I've seen people delivered. I've seen God's hand. But I think mostly what Jesus is talking about here is not miracles, but mission. There were 120 men and women in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. 120 that had gathered around Jesus after three and a half years of ministry. The Holy Spirit fell on the church that day. Peter got up and preached a sermon. And by the end of the day... There were 3,000 believers. And within a few days, the church in Jerusalem had grown to 5,000. Mission, not miracles. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I ask you again, have you ever been in a situation where you thought you were in over your head? Are you over your head now? Have you ever felt that you were inadequate to meet the challenges that you face? Do you feel inadequate now? Here's a bit of advice from an old man. I've been there. I think there's only one person in this room older than me, and I won't tell you who that is. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Muster a little courage and plow ahead, undaunted by your inadequacies. Make an effort to get beyond your fears and shortcomings. I'm not suggesting that you live in denial. You know denial, that's a river in Egypt. But I am suggesting that you not wallow in self-pity. That you not dwell on the past, mistakes, inadequacies, places you were in over your head. Read the epistle that Jen read again from 1 Peter. Peter is not a man who's dwelling on the past. He's not dwelling on the fact that he denied Jesus. Ditto Paul, who persecuted the church, but went on to suffer for the church in Thessalonica and Berea and across the Middle East and Europe. Ditto David, who sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband put to death, Uriah the Hittite. He did not dwell on the past, on his brokenness or on his sin. We could say the same thing about Moses and other saints of the church throughout history. Don't dwell on the past. Believe in Jesus. He and He alone is the way to the Father. He has revealed the Father to us. And the Father loves you. And He wants you to succeed. Not in your own strength. But in spite of your weaknesses. In spite of your inadequacies. In the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Pray, beloved. Pray. Ask boldly for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you can have the power to live your life for the glory of God. Let's pray together.